Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is October 2021 General Conference Review, Saturday afternoon session. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. I hope you enjoyed last week's. Today's today's episode is going to be very similar. I'll be reviewing the talks and discussing the themes presented in the afternoon session of October 2021's General Conference. Before I jump too far into this, I've got an apology to make. In last week's episode, I used some fairly harsh language in my assessment and when I have presented ideas, I've tried to present them in a way where both a believer and a non-believer can come to their own conclusions based on the facts. I'm specifically talking about the accusations I made about um, hypocrisy in the leadership of the church. As I thought more about the episode, I decided that I came off a little bit too strong. In the future, I will do my best to maintain a neutral standing and to present the facts and my assessments of them, and I will try my best to do it in a way that isn't quite so accusatory and leave the assumptions and the conclusions up to the listener. With that being said, I do have my own opinions, and I have sometimes shared them on here. I don't want this podcast to be um, quite so contentious as I presented it last week. After reviewing last week's episode, I did feel bad with the way I presented it. I felt like I came off a little bit too strong. So I'll do my best to maintain a bit more neutrality moving forward. The Saturday afternoon session started off with President Eyring doing the sustaining of the General Authorities, 70s, and General Officers. Nothing really of note in this particular one, just presented names and presented them to be sustained. The first speaker in the afternoon session was Elder David A. Bednar, and he gave a talk called With the Power of God in Great Glory. He starts off his talk um, relating some church history some belief claims about things that happened in the history of the church. I don't want to go in and pick apart every single piece that he said um, about some of the claims of these events that Joseph Smith described, but the, the point that he's making is, was that the, ideas, the idea that covenants and priesthood was restored to Joseph Smith. From there, he, he transitions his talk into explaining how these covenants are what bind us to God. He then proceeds to talk about how these covenants bless people throughout the world, and he talks about some of the things that he witnessed. He doesn't go into any like any specific stories, but he does say a couple of different things. Um, someone who was paralyzed from a, an automobile accident, accident 
And after recovering from the accident, how they, this person had to adjust to a new lifestyle of limited mobility, um, how this person found comfort in the covenants and in God. All of these stories that he, that he cites here are just vague enough so that you can't really do any research and find out what was happening or the specific details about any of these events. One of the ones that I, one of the story, the last story that he told, I, I found really interesting. I disagree a little bit with the conclusions that he made. So I'll read, this is about halfway through his talk. He says, I witnessed the righteousness and power of God in great glory received through faithfulness to covenants and ordinances in the life of a church member who experienced the heartache of divorce. This sister's spiritual and emotional distress was heightened by a sense of unfairness associated with her spouse's violation of covenants and the breakup of their marriage. She wanted justice and accountability. As this faithful woman was struggling with all that had happened to her, she studied and pondered the Savior's atonement more intently and intensely than ever before in her life. Gradually, a deeper understanding of Christ's redemptive mission distilled upon her soul. His suffering for our own sins, and also for our pains, weaknesses, disappointments, and anguish. And she was inspired to ask herself a penetrating question. Since the price already has been paid for those sins, would you demand that the price be paid twice? She realized that such a requirement would be neither just nor merciful. This woman learned that binding herself to the Savior through covenants and ordinances can heal the wounds caused by another person's unrighteous exercise of moral agency and enabled her to find the capacity to forgive and receive peace, mercy, and love. I bring this up because I think it's really important as a non-believer, as someone who's left, to recognize that even though I don't believe in the things that he's describing, they still do have a healing power for this woman that he's described. People find peace and joy and they find forgiveness through their faith in God and Jesus. I think it's important for people of all walks of life to recognize that there are good lessons to learn from religion, even if you don't believe in it. That being said, just because I don't think that sin in the traditional sense exists or that our eternal souls will be damned for decisions that we make in this life. This woman does, and her understanding of religion helped her come to terms with something very hard in her life. And I think that has value. All in all, I don't really have anything critical that I would say about this first talk by Elder Bednar. He presents some truth claims and some beliefs, and then he talks about how these beliefs can be helpful and can help someone to, to heal and find peace in their life. People in all walks of life find peace from a variety of different sources. So I can't judge someone. I can't say that her, the peace that this woman found wasn't valid because I disagree with what road brought her to that piece that's just not fair don't have much negative to say i mean he presented some some history of the church that isn't um that isn't accurate history and it's more the church mythologizing the history but that's that's fine that's what churches do 
So I don't have much to complain about there. The next speaker in Saturday afternoon was Elder Ciro Schmel. He's of the 70. The talk was called The Faith to Act and Become. He goes through the process of describing the things that people can do to become better followers of Jesus Christ. The four main points that he tries to make in this is he recommends the the members of the church to ask the Heavenly Father how they can become better disciples and then to act on whatever promptings they receive on how to become better. The third thing he mentions is to study, to study the scriptures and to study the life of the Savior. The final point that he makes on this is act to become. And again, I think this is real similar to Elder Bednar's talk. While I don't agree with everything that he said about um, the scriptures that he's citing, and I don't, I don't hold the same beliefs that he does, this idea of acting to become is important. There was a quote that he said that I thought was actually really good. I, think, I thought that it was an excellent message to teach to the members of the church. He said, this is about um, just about to the end of his talk. He said, to become a better follower of the Savior Jesus Christ is a lifelong journey, and we are all in different stages, moving at a different pace. We must keep in mind that this is not a competition, and we are here to love and help each other. We need to be acting in order to allow the Savior to work with us in our lives. I like this sentiment. This is, I think this is an idea that, that would do a lot of good in the church if it was pushed forward more often. I've noticed a subtle theme in some of the talks, not everything. There's a lot of encouragement not to judge each other and to help and love each other. And I think that is a very important message to come across regardless of where you stand on your belief in a god this idea of all being in it together we are all part of this human race we are all people and we need to love and support each other as best we can that sentiment has so much value and i wish i wish that more people could incorporate that into their their daily practice of being a human being. As this elder Schmel said, we need to act to become. If everyone in the human race could act as if we were all one people, help each other, love each other, this world would be such a better place to live in. This idea is excellent. To end his talk, he cites President Dallin H. Oaks from a talk that he gave in the October 2000 General Conference. Um, and this, this quote actually, again, I think the theme that I've, that I've been <laughs> mentioning with, with this session is, even though I don't believe in what they're saying, these ideas are important and could have a transcendental value outside of a religious practice. This quote from Elder Oak said, The final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts of what we have done. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. I said this in the last episode as well. If I recall correctly, it was in response to a comment that Elder Oak said, Regardless of whether you believe there is a final judgment or not, the idea of all of our acts and thoughts reflecting the person that we are 
and being able to critically analyze ourselves and ask ourselves, is the person I am now the person that I want to be? And then learning how to make adjustments and become a better person so that you can feel good about the person that you are. In my daily practice of self-improvement, I like to reflect in the evenings on the decisions that I've made throughout the day and ask myself if those were good or bad decisions. And I don't do this in a way to tear myself apart or to say that I'm not perfect or I'm constantly making mistakes, but it's this idea of reflecting on what decisions you've made and then analyzing if those decisions line up with the type of person that you want to be. And then taking those thoughts and incorporating small changes in your lives to become the person that you want to be. Self-improvement is important. Regardless if you believe in an afterlife and a final judgment, it's something that we can all incorporate into our daily practice to work together to become better people. Now, the next speaker was Sister Susan H. Porter. She's number two of the four female speakers in the general conference. This one is called God's Love, the Most, the Most Joyous to the Soul. In a roundabout way, I think she's trying to address the problem of evil. What I mean by the problem of evil, if you're not familiar with it, it's the inconsistency in the concept of a loving God in, com in contrast to the many evils that we see in the world around us. And what I mean by evil, I guess I should define that word, things that negatively impact the lives of other people. Not just person-to-person -person evils, but famine, natural disasters, people being born with differently abled bodies, a vast number of other things that would be considered perhaps more natural things that are evil or unfair. And then the second category, if you will, would be evils that people do to each other. You know, you could go to big dramatic ones like the Holocaust or even just to interpersonal ones like abuse within a family. There are so many different horrible things that happen in this world on a daily basis. And then the problem of evil is, is that how could a loving God allow all of this evil to happen? If he, she, or they is indeed loving and allows these sorts of things to happen, there are some pretty uncomfortable implications of that idea. On the flip side, you could make the claim that God is all-loving but not all-powerful, that is to say, cannot stop these evils, then perhaps you could have an all-loving God. And that's, that's kind of what Sister Susan H. Porter is trying to say. And if I, if I didn't mention it at the beginning, um, she is the first counselor in the primary general presidency. The Cliff Notes idea that she's trying to put across is that, that God's love is not found in the circumstances, but in his presence. That is to say that he's not responsible 
for the negative things that happen in our lives. We can feel God's presence, and that's how we feel his love. She doesn't quite address whether or not God could stop these evil things or these these horrible things that happen to people. But she does say that his love is felt with his presence and not shown by stopping these evil things. I will share an interesting story that she recounts, and we'll talk a little bit about it. And this is about halfway through her talk. She said, 20 years ago, a beloved family member stepped away from the church. He had many unanswered questions. His wife, a convert, stayed true to her faith. They worked hard to preserve their marriage in the differences that arose. And believe me, I am in a mixed faith marriage myself. There are many differences and difficulties that come about if one person stays and the other person leaves. She continues, she says, Last year he wrote down three questions about the church that were difficult for him to reconcile and sent them to two couples who had been his friends for several years. He invited them to reflect on those questions and come to dinner to share their thoughts. Following this visit with friends, he went to his room and started working on a project. The evening conversation and love shown to him by his friends came to the forefront of his, his mind. He later wrote, that he was compelled to stop his work. He said, A bright light filled my soul. I was familiar with this deep feeling of enlightenment, but in this case, it continued to grow stronger than ever before and lasted for several minutes. I sat quietly with the feeling, which I came to understand as a manifestation of the love of God for me. I felt a spiritual impression that told me I could return to church and express this love of God in what I do there. He then wondered about his questions. The feeling he received was that God honored his questions and that not having cleared answers should not stop him from moving forward. He should share God's love while he continued to contemplate. As he acted on that impression, he felt a kinship with Joseph Smith who remarked after his first vision, my soul was filled with love and for many days I could rejoice with great joy. Now, I can't comment on whether or not this individual had an experience which, in which he felt the love of God. It's evident that they don't have clear answers to many of these problems because, as she said here, she said that God honored his questions and not having clear answers should not stop him from moving forward. I don't agree with this conclusion because there's a lot of other ways that you could take this. They're talking specifically about the love of God. They're not talking about church. They're not talking about Joseph Smith. This man felt the love of God. Now, she never mentions what these questions are, and the questions are never addressed. And I don't like that. Here is what should have happened, in my mind, if this is a church led by Christ himself. The problem with this is that when they say you need to keep going to church, even if there are not answers to your problems, they are admitting that they do not have communication with God in order to receive answers to those questions. Now, I don't want to criticize this person's decision to reinsert themselves into the church and become an active member again. That's their choice. If they feel that the church resonates with them and that they can be a good person in the church, 
then that's their choice. If they want to ignore these questions, the questions that led them out in the first place, again, that's their choice. But the way this is presented, I think, is problematic. The way that these questions are dismissed is evidence to me that they don't have any more or less access to deity than anyone else. While I recognize that they're trying to encourage members to come back, to say that the love of God will overcome these doubts and concerns that you have, there are real problems with them not being able to address them properly. If they had the ability to talk to God in the manner that they claim, then these questions would be a non-issue because we could get answers for them. The other thing that I find, and this is maybe me getting a little bit too personal, the other thing that I find problematic with this or frustrating with this is it, it plants that seed of hope in our loved one's lives that we might one day change and come back. Now, granted, that is possible, but very, very unlikely. In order for me to come back, I think there would be a long list of things that would need to get addressed. And not that they need me to be a member or that I'm anything special, but I wouldn't feel comfortable as a member of the church unless certain things are changed. Anyway, I got off on a little bit of tangent there. This next one, I think, might be my favorite talk in all of the sessions. This one is by Elder Eric W. Kopischki. I may have mispronounced that. (laughs) He's of the 70, and the talk is called Addressing Mental Health. We'll get right into this because I think it's it's really a great talk. Um, Again, I don't want to criticize beliefs, and so I'm just going to kind of bypass some of their truth claims, and I'm just going to dig into the parts that I think are really good and the parts that I think are really bad. He begins the talk out by... (laughs) you know, hitting the buzzword, talking about the covenant path. But then he's, he also says that he and his family have gone through some very real problems. He starts to share personal familial experiences with mental illness. And he explicitly mentions clinical depression, severe anxiety, bipolar disorder, ADHD. He does explicitly say that he he's sharing these stories of his family members with their approval, which is important as well. <laughs> it would be pretty crazy to get blindsided by getting mentioned over the pulpit about your mental struggles. This subject hits home for me, and I wish, I, I just wish that they would have had a talk like this 20 years ago when I had first started to struggle with depression. I haven't mentioned too much. Uh, some of the struggles that I've had throughout my life, but I was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. With that, I had a comorbidity with uh, depression. As a kid, the stance on mental disorders that was presented to me through the church was very unhealthy. So listening to a talk like this is so encouraging that they might be moving in the right direction with mental health. He addresses specifically this problem. And so I'll read the third paragraph of his talk. He says, at the same time, our doctrine teaches us to strive to become like Jesus Christ and be perfected in him. Our children sing, I am trying to be like Jesus. 
We long to be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are perfect. Because mental illness can interfere with our perception of perfection, it remains all too often a taboo. As a result, there is too much ignorance, too much silent suffering, and too much despair. Many feeling overwhelmed because they do not meet perceived standards mistakenly believe they have no place in the church. I resonated with that so well. And I just had, I wished that there had been messages like this when I was a kid. He goes on from there and he talks about, he goes on to share the story of his son. And he had a son that left his mission early because of depression and anxiety and panic attacks. And he addresses the fact that his son leaving for his own well-being was devastating to him because of the expectations that the culture puts onto the members of the church. This is Elder, Elder Eric W. Kapitschke talking about his son's experience. And he said, Unbeknownst to us, our son's return was infinitely more devastating for him. Note that he loved the Lord and wanted to serve, and yet he could not for reasons he struggled to understand. He soon found himself at a point of total hopelessness, battling deep guilt. He no longer felt accepted, but spiritually numb. He became consumed by recurring thoughts of death. While in this irrational state, our son believed that the only action left was to take his own life. It took the Holy Ghost and a legion of angels on both sides of the veil to save him. Again, I don't believe in the same concepts, heaven and hell, angels, that the church does. But I feel for this young man. Because I have been there in those throes of despair where you don't feel like there's anything or any reason to keep going. And this is over the pulpit at General Conference. They're addressing suicidal ideation because of the expectations of the culture on the members of the church. As I said earlier in the episode, even though I disagree with the road that their son took to recover from this suicidal ideation, I can recognize that it was helpful for him and brought him to a place of, of healing and recovery. For a lot of aspects of our lives, the road really doesn't matter as much as the outcome, whether that's Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever it is, as long as you are finding comfort, becoming a better person, being a good member of your community, the road doesn't matter as much as the outcome does. Now, he moves the talk in another direction that I think is so awesome. This is just over halfway through. He says, My next observation is that it can be difficult for parents to identify their children's struggles, but we must educate ourselves. How can we know the difference between the difficulties associated with normal development and signs of illness? As parents, we have the sacred charge to help our children navigate life's challenges. However, few of us are mental health specialists. We nevertheless need to care for our children by helping them learn to be content with their sincere efforts 
as they strive to meet appropriate expectations. Each of us knows from our own personal shortcomings that spiritual growth is an ongoing process. I love that he called for the members of the church to better educate themselves on mental health and mental wellness. This, This is such an important subject. And if the church can can actually make some moves towards being healthier in this way, I think that they can avoid a lot of the harm and hurt that people experience when they don't meet the expectations. Because oftentimes, when people don't meet those expectations in their life, it's not because they don't want to. I think a move like this is excellent for the church. He then mentions that there is a, a mental health help section in the Gospel Library app. I haven't myself gone in to look at it yet, but maybe I'll, uh, I'll read through it and, and uh, do an episode kind of giving my thoughts on, on what they're saying there. I'm hopeful that it's a good tool. I'm hopeful that, that it's good advice that they give. He then makes one more statement before he kind of closes and bears his testimony that I think uh, it worth mentioning. He says, my final observation We need to constantly watch over each other. We must love one another and be less judgmental, especially when our expectations are not immediately met. I'm so glad that messages like this are being presented over the pulpit. The next speaker was Elder Ronald A. Rasband. I've gone a little bit long, so if I want to get through all of these in a reasonable amount of time, I've got to move a little bit quicker. He presents some ideas that I think are valid. Uh, but again, he couches them in, in religiosity that I don't agree with. The basic point of his talk is that the things that we think about are the things that really matter to us. He encourages the members to align their thoughts and the things that they're thinking and contemplating with the type of person they want to be and encouraging them to think about Christ and the gospel. That's kind of that's the gist of what he's going for here. He goes through seven points of his soul, is what he describes them as. Seven things that are important to his soul. And he encourages members to keep these, keep seven of them, and then to make up the last three, the eight, nine, and ten. Get to be the member's own. First, he says, love God and Jesus Christ. Second one, he says, love your neighbor. So he's kind of going to the Matthew 22, 39 quote of Christ there saying that, the, the first great commandment, love God. The second, to love your neighbor. Third, he says, love yourself. Fourth, keep the commandments. Fifth, always be worthy to attend the temple. Six, be joyful and cheerful. And seven, follow God's living prophet. After he mentions each of these, he kind of elucidates a little bit further and talks about it, specifically what he means. So as he's talking about this last one, number seven, I think it's really, um, this is where I would maybe have some disagreements or questions that I would, that I would ask if I were there. He talks about the fact that we have a living prophet. That's what their belief claim is, is that they have a living prophet. And then he says, we are distinguished as a church to be led by prophets, seers, and revelators called of God for this time. I promise that as you listen and follow their counsel, you will never be led astray. Now that is a bold claim, a very bold claim, that we will never be led astray if we follow the counsel of the prophets, seers, and revelators. 
such a claim that they will never lead you astray can be disproven by one single instance of the membership being led astray. He goes on to say, We live in a time when we are tossed to and fro, when spirituality, decency, integrity, and respect are under attack. We have to make choices. We have the voice of the Lord through his prophet to calm our fears and lift our sights. For when President Nelson speaks, he speaks for the Lord. The question I would ask, and I would use it, I, I would perhaps use some of the same verbiage that he used while he's setting up this claim, which is, is probably a reference to like Ephesians 4.14, where it's talking about being misled, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. The same reference in Ephesians 4.14, 4, Henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The church has changed dramatic direction on core belief tenets from its inception. So the question I ask is, how is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints different than any other church when it's displaying this very same concept of being tossed to and fro? This next bit, he's, he's trying to make the point that you have to make sure to take the whole context of a story in order to understand it well. And he's, saying, he's citing the story of Naaman in the Old Testament and Elisha, and that Elisha in the instructions that Elisha gave to Naaman to wash in the river seven times. <laughs> the thing that's funny is that when, when they retell this story of Naaman, they leave out the part of how important it is for him to bring Judean earth back with him in order to worship Yahweh on the dirt that is Yahweh's homeland. <laughs> anyway, it's just a belief from, uh, from that time period when where it was important that you worshipped the gods in the land that they had power over. So if, if we're supposed to take every bit of the story and not take it out of context, that would mean that the temples today would need Judean soil in order for them to be proper places of worship for God. Just a random side note. Sorry about that. <laughs> The next one was uh, Preparing for the Second Coming of Christ by Elder Christophel Golden of the Seventy. <clears throat> in this, he's talking about preparing for the second coming, inferring that it's coming closer, coming near, that sort of thing. Again, referring back to Elder Rasband's talk, we shouldn't take it out of context. If we look at the prophecies, you know, Matthew 24, about the second coming, we'll see that it was supposed to have happened a long time ago. That's a subject for a different day. I'm not going to say too much about this talk. A lot of it are, are belief claims that Christ was resurrected and is coming back and talking about getting ready for that. The next speaker was Elder Moises Villanueva of the 70, and uh, it's favored of the Lord in all my days. And it, he talks about trials and he talks about the way we handle trials and he's encouraging people to focus on their blessings and be thankful and to focus more on our blessings than we do on our trials. Not too much that I want to say about this particular talk. The final speaker of the Saturday afternoon session was Elder Gary E. Stevenson. 
of the Quorum of the Twelve, and it's called Simply Beautiful, Beautifully Simple. He talks about the restored gospel in this one, and he's specifically making the claim that it's very simple. He's trying to simplify the way people practice the church. He mentions the general handbook and then um, some other things kind of goes into detail, but he tries to simplify the gospel into four points as a way to say these are the four things you need to focus on in order to uh, follow the gospel. And the first one is living the gospel of Christ. The second one is caring for those in need. Three is inviting all to receive the gospel. And four is uniting families for eternity. He goes through and he shares examples of each of these points that he said. These are stories from people that he's met, presumably in his travels around the globe. He goes through each of these stories that highlight one of these bullet points that he made and then closes off his talk by encouraging the members to to practice them in their daily lives. That sums up the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference. This honestly was probably one of the better ones. There wasn't as much to tear apart. There wasn't as much said that really stood out to me as being glaringly terrible. And frankly, there were a couple of really good ones. Rhetoric that encouraged positive mental health and better understanding of mental disorders. Next week, I'll go over the priesthood session and break down some of the things that were said there. I've had a number of listeners reach out to me, send me messages on their thoughts on some of the episodes. Greatly appreciate those that have reached out. And some people have actually requested um, certain topics that they want me to discuss. And so I will get to those down the road. As I said at the outset of this episode, I want it to be a little bit more fair and less accusatory in some of my assessments. And I think this was a good session to start that on because Frankly, there wasn't a whole lot terrible that was said. Yeah, there were some truth claims presented that I would probably refute or probably disagree with. Some claims about history that are, that are just not accurate representations of what really happened. Treating the Book of Mormon as if it were history. Things like that that you know, I, could have, I could have picked apart and, and such. But honestly, I, I don't really care to do that. They can believe what they want. If they want to believe that it's history, that's fine people that do take that stance are in for a big shock if they ever dive in to research these subjects. Thanks so much for listening. I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>